Today with, do you mind introducing yourself? I'm Casey Moody. I'm a fourth year philosophy and archaeology student, and I'm a host on the podcast Thoughts. So you guys in the the philosophy department and students have started a new podcast, and we are going to chat a bit about the different podcasts that I've heard that. I've had a sneak peek of. We'll do speedy summaries of the episodes. Yes, of course, of course. So which one do you want to talk about first? Okay, the first one I'm going to do is on pain. Okay, are you ready? I am ready. Go. Okay, so this podcast covers what pain exactly is. So whether or not we can make a physical and mental distinction and whether it's useful to make that distinction at all. It also talks about the difference between or the relationship between pain and consciousness and whether or not you can be in pain even if you have no conscious experience of being in pain. So for example, if you're woken up from having a really bad headache, were you feeling the pain while you were asleep? It also talks about the badness of pain. So they discuss how some people can experience pain as a sensation, but not necessarily one that hurts. So pain does not have to be a bad feeling. And it talks about the repercussions of that in our definition of pain which then brings us on to the discussion of whether or not you can provide necessary and sufficient conditions for pain and whether or not philosophers should bother doing this at all in general. The woman that we speak to is Jennifer Corns and she is pretty sceptical about whether or not this is very useful for finding out about stuff that we care about. Then they go on to talk about utilitarianism, which is essentially the idea, are we out of time? Yeah, your time's No! <laughs> Keep going. Okay, I'll very quickly say utilitarianism is basically about sort of maximising pleasure, minimising pain, but you need to have some sort of definition of pain to do that. And then finally, they talk about the real world implications of research into pain and how philosophy can help progress pain treatment. I loved, I loved the episode. It was uh, really, really interesting to hear about it from a philosophy perspective. Well, you know, I loved it too. I did not record the episode. <laughs> I knew nothing about pain. In fact, I didn't even know, I'm ashamed to say, that it was a part of philosophy. So I was quite fascinated to listen to it as well. Mm. Do you, do you want to uh, talk about that episode a little bit? Or yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, um, I had some, some things that I noticed that I thought were very interesting. Okay. Um, so there's the, I sort of thought of the as someone who doesn't study psychology or philosophy, the classic question, if a tree falls and no one hears it, does it exist? <laughs> so in the interview, they talked about pains which aren't painful and people who are able to either be insensitive or don't feel any pain at all. So I wondered from a philosophy point of view, uh, kind of where... First, I guess maybe it would be helpful to do a definition of pain. I know that that's a difficult thing that not everyone's sure. Yeah. So I think that that is like such a big thing about pain is that it has been quite hard to define. Um, but the woman was saying, Jennifer Corns was saying that in science, it generally is considered to have three parts. So there's like the affect, which is the, the bit that hurts, the actual feeling of it's an uncomfortable sensation. There's a sensory bit, which is like the location of it, where it's hot or cold or stabby. 
And then the cognitive bit, which is what makes it scary, it takes up all your attention and it sort of tells you you need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like a very vague definition of pain. And then in terms of people who, so maybe they don't feel it as if it's not hurting, so they just don't have the affect, but they do have the sensory element and they potentially also have the cognitive element. Right. And then people who don't feel pain at all, I think that's probably just like a very, very interesting question. Like if you're not feeling anything, does it exist as pain or is it just something going wrong in your body? Mm. Um, and I think that's an interesting question. It probably, to my knowledge, has not been answered, but I suppose may well have been. Yeah, it would be really interesting. I think there was one woman that I read about who doesn't experience fear, which is not exactly linked to pain, but they, and I think also I found it interesting in the interview that they said pain sort of occurs all across the brain and there's not one specific area yeah that whether we could get or scientists could have someone in who doesn't experience pain and try and ethically test yeah test their brain well I thought that was so interesting because I had always probably quite ignorantly assumed that there was literally just a center in your brain that sort of controlled pain but obviously that's they have discovered that's not the case mm-hmm. and then you can see that in the fact that things like um anesthetics tend to like they don't target pain necessarily they kind of numb the whole body or the whole area that it's applied to mm. um so you can see like practically it's just it's actually quite difficult to treat pain um, and yeah. certainly in a sort of targeted way that was uh, another really interesting thing that they talked about in the interview was the cognitive element of pain and how attention and the situation that you're in can make a really big difference to yeah. how much pain you're feeling well do you know I remember this is kind of unrelated but I remember chatting to someone who was a psychologist and they told me that like it hurts so much more if you like cut yourself once you see the blood and so that's really interesting to think about the interplay between that kind of element of fear and knowing something is actually quite wrong mm-hmm. and the level of intensity of the sensation that you feel yeah um so it would be really interesting it is interesting to think about how they kind of feed into each other and sort of leading on from that there's a lot of really interesting psychology research about the origins of chronic pain and uh, pain for people with phantom limbs, which is fascinating because I guess that brings up a philosophical and psychological question about where pain exists. Because if you can have pain in a limb that is no longer there or um, chronic pain with no sort of physical explanation. Yeah, that is so interesting. I mean, I think it definitely brings up the kind of the mental and physical distinction of pain and whether or not you know it's like something going the wrong, wrong in the body which and then you sort of feel pain there in that area or whether or not really it's just a signal in your brain which sort of creates the illusion of feeling pain in that area mm. um and then again i suppose that does bring up the function of pain of whether or not it really is just a means by which to like alert you that something is wrong and has to be done mm. um so yeah it's really interesting it's really interesting there was one thing as well that they were talking um, about the McGill pain questionnaire and subjective experience. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of was thinking about pain vocabularies in different languages. And they were talking about as well the vocabulary you use when you go to a doctor. So if you say like, oh, it just hurts all over rather than <laughs> being able to describe a very specific type of pain. It makes yeah. a big difference. And I read uh, in Russian, apparently, there's no distinction between pain and aches. And they have a specific type of pain for pain under torture, which um, I thought was really interesting. 
that is fascinating so do you think that the sort of lingual surrounding pain is massively influenced by the kind of common pains experienced culturally yeah or like there have been at some point historically yeah because i i guess otherwise it's i guess that's a whole that's a whole conversation about like how meaning comes from words and how that influences your thoughts but um they would have arisen from some sort of use or need for that in the language yeah oh that's fascinating yeah for for reference i that was a 2012 paper by a woman with a very difficult to pronounce name (laughs) called wurzbika i think but i'll i'll link that in the in the description i mean i think that also feeds into the because she talks about how philosophy can like help with treatment of pain and her whole idea that the sort of the the purpose of like a doctor or a diagnostic a diagnostician is really to act as a translator between that kind of everyday language that we use surrounding pain and instead of trying to like then define that pain it's more about using that and translating that into a target for treatment Mm. so it's like her idea basically is that we'll get better treatment for pain if we stop trying to treat pain Mm. and then we look at like instead we look at what we're trying to target to fix um and so I suppose like the language around pain and like trying to be quite specific about that comes into that quite well and I guess it really brings in the subjectivity of the individual as well, because d- people have different pain tolerances and you can't, I think there's a, some people have the view that, you know, the pain scale that you get given, someone's seven might be someone else's two. And it makes yeah. it difficult to understand and treat sort of uh, reliably how that's happening. Well, yeah, that's so true. That is so true. And I think it's interesting as well as like for how worthwhile it is, for example, to like how pressing a need is to treat a sort of pain. For example, like if my my seven is your two, um, then like is my sort of pain less legitimate than your seven, if you know what I mean? Or mm. if it's just from like the same a different physical manifestation, then I suppose it becomes easier to sort of see what needs are more pressing. You know? Yeah. And I they raised a really good point as well as of um how often minority people from minority groups and women their pain yeah. is considered less severe yeah it's so interesting mm. I think that's been spoken about a lot recently it's like quite a lot of research that I've read about that and I think it's fascinating because I do think that um to an extent I think because like women experience kind of like uh, like monthly pain if you know what I mean like there's like periods for example can be like really excruciating um I think there's sort of more of an expectation that like we put up with a bit more mm-hmm. um which then seems strange in that we're treated less, like our pain is taken less seriously. But I just wonder if that is because like we have less of a tendency to complain about pain because we're quite used to experiencing it just so regularly. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. It's similar. Mm-hmm. It reminded me kind of of the the in the DSM, the diagnostic manual that is used within a lot of uh, American and UK psychology, lots mm-hmm. of the um, sort of lots of the supposed symptoms are based on very small groups of often mostly male men and within I remember a few years ago there was um a campaign to try and increase the awareness of uh, how females experience strokes because it's very different and the pain is different but often in a lot of the adverts I don't know if you've ever seen them on tv it it portrays the more stereotypically male experience of a stroke so yeah that's interesting I mean it's definitely been the case is that not the case very much in like autism as well 
mm-hmm. that a lot of the studies have been done on men and so it's much harder to diagnose it in girls or women yeah and psychopathy and <coughs> oh that's interesting yeah so many things well i suppose if it's in one it's probably in them all but mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting um and then i guess the last thing i thought there was a it was quite a brief mention but it's very interesting about ma- masochism and where pain meets pleasure yeah that is so interesting so i think that like a way that that is often explained um, is that it's not really the pain that people are enjoying it's more that what the pain kind of symbolizes so if someone's hurting you then maybe what you really like about that is the the power and the humiliation of that and the pain is kind of necessary to make that humiliation and that power real but it's not it's not necessarily the pain that you're enjoying mm. if you see what I mean but of course that sorry no go on I, I thought as well she drew a really interesting parallel because I think often that's quite it's has in the past been considered quite deviant and quite taboo but mm-hmm. I liked the parallel that she drew between going to the gym and enjoying being sore after a day of working out because you know that that is you working towards a goal or an experience that you desire which isn't worlds apart from other types of uh, mass masochism as well I can't say yeah that. no of course I mean I think because she talked about like conflicting desires I think that was a really good way of putting it mm. in that the 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 pain may be like a necessary byproduct of a desire that you have like some other goal or experience that you want to achieve mm. and I suppose you could see masochism in that way um and it doesn't necessarily have to be sort of like deviant sexual behavior mm. uh, which is interesting it's really interesting yeah should we move on to the postmodernism episode yes yeah are you ready to do a speedy study? A, a speedy summary. Speedy stu- sorry, speedy stump. This is where the crossover. Let's <laughs> go speedy summary. There we go. Okay, uh, so three, two, one, go. Okay, in this episode, uh, Hamish Stewart and Matt Forster spoke to David Baker about postmodernism. Um, and so they talked about how postmodernism is often reduced to platitudes and misunderstandings, such as nothing's objective and there are no absolute truths. Um, so they go on to talk about some of the complexities within postmodernism and how it really is just a rejection of modernism. So it can't totally be understood as a standalone thing. It's basically rejecting the idea of meta-narratives in postmodernism. So then they go on to talk about the relationship with postmodernism and modernism with different cultures and traditions. Um, and in particular, a paper which talks about the impact of modernism on colonialism and how, because it had these meta-narratives, which are essentially sort of stories which tell, encapsulate a universal truth or universal experience, um, how they could have been used to legitimise colonialism and a lot of the, the Western ideals by making them universal and then sort of putting them on other cultures and on the world and saying, oh my God, up, but keep going. <laughs> 60 seconds is really not long at all. <laughs> um, oh God, okay, well, that was quite a big part of it, to be fair. Um, and then they also go on to talk about um, how postmodernism is both playful and serious. And you can listen to the podcast if you want to understand that. And then they talk about a little bit about the relationship between postmodernism and poststructuralism. And also some problems with, with modernism in that how, sorry, postmodernism and how that it can quickly become modernism by mistake. It's all very interesting. Yeah, it was a it was a really fascinating episode, and I liked the distinction that he made between because I'm not that familiar with 
I wasn't very familiar with a lot of the concepts, but I thought they were very well explained and debated. Yeah, no, definitely. He did a really good job of, because I think it's quite a complex, subtle issue, and that's why it's so often reduced to kind of nothing, there is no truth, nothing is real, nothing is objective, um, because that's kind of like an easier way of understanding it. So I thought it was like a really good kind of beginner's guide to the nuance of it a bit more. And yeah. definitely, I mean, I left it with a much better understanding of what it is because I was I think I was sort of in the category of um the kind of the sort of platitudes before that definitely. One thing I really liked was the distinction he made between postmodernisms. So I thought the mention of what now I think he defined as folk postmodernism, which is the belief that as as far as I understand it, as long as or there are multiple different meta narratives and explanations, but in general they're treated as equal um which contrasts to the sort of the way as well the way that some postmodernist thinking was used for um progress in colonialism and to other other people yeah because i think that like this that because modernism was a problem because it was such like it was a kind of enlightenment way of thinking where it was just a sort of there's one rational truth and we can find it with sort of scientific logic and reasoning um which then meant that if you just like imposed that on you know other people had other cultures had different ways of like viewing the world and seeing it and i think postmodernism was kind of like i mean i think as far as i understood it postmodernism was good in that it kind of like legitimized different narratives that people have constructed and sort of saying that no there's not one all-encapsulating thing um but there's sort of many ways of viewing the world and kind of viewing truth mm. um but it didn't ever like so postmodernism wasn't able to ever really refute modernism because that would in itself be quite a modernist thing to do yeah um so yeah it's very interesting but they they more sort of interrogated meta-narratives and then they tried to find places where like they broke down rather than so it's just they were trying to show that they were unstable rather than trying to show that they were untrue or to refute them mm -hmm. i liked as well the way they described how they the techniques they used to try and differentiate themselves between the modernist thinkers before and uh their movement do you mind talking a little bit about that yeah so i think that it was this old idea of the use like play um, and that they used sort of wordplay and stuff and it wasn't so serious as the the modernists and I think that partly what they were trying to do is that the, the seriousness of the modernists was kind of like a claim to authority and a way of making it quite exclusive. And so what they were trying to do is kind of trying to like undercut that authority by adopting a kind of playful mode of discussion to then kind of distance themselves a little bit from the modernists. Um, and then also, as I said, to undercut that authority. Mm. I thought that was really interesting from a, like from a psychology point of view, I guess there's a type of schema which is sort of really crude way to put it a thought pattern or an expectation mm -hmm. and they they broke the script schema which is uh sort of the set of expectations you have for how people do things in an academic setting which yeah. helped a lot with showing a lot of the flaws and just poking a bit of fun at how serious and uh 100 right and close-minded some of the activists <laughs> were yeah, definitely. I think it's such a uh, such a great way to distance yourselves, to like reject the language norms probably of a certain group. I mean, like you see that all the time in like subcultures and stuff like that. So I suppose it was kind of a version of that, which is really interesting. Mm. I really like the description of um, meta narratives as well, 
which I think they was they were defined as like big coherent stories which are used to unite people for mm -hmm. a common goal but there's a really <clears throat> lots of very interesting debate about whether humans need religion or some kind of meta-narrative to feel purpose and make sense of the uh, difficulties that they experience in their life which I think we still haven't some some people argue that like science is the is the new the new religion yeah yeah I think that's interesting because I do think that people definitely have a real desire and need for everyone to sort of create a coherent story that just sort of makes sense um and it's, it's quite it's quite uncomfortable when everything just sort of seems like you know random collection of things that don't quite fit together and mm. um, so yeah I think it's interesting I think that maybe there is always a tendency to come up with some sort of meta-narrative whether or not that is facing religion or rationality or you know science it's fascinating uh shall we talk now about the last episode that I listened to which was time traveling yes yeah. definitely are you ready for another speedy summary oh, let me prepare myself <laughs> yes i'm ready i'm ready okay three two one go okay so in this episode Heyman stewart spoke to dr steph rennick who's a researcher at glasgow who studies time travel and foreknowledge and um, so first she talks about why time travel is important and part of that is because there's such a sort of folk interest in time travel in films and media and all that so it's really important to kind of that philosophy should look at in things that interest the general public and um, also it shines light on other issues like free will causation luck foreknowledge intentions and finally we're time traveling right now and um, slowly but we are time traveling into the future so it's good that we you know we need to understand it um, so then she talks about some of the texts that are really that deal with time travel well for example bill and ted's excellent adventure and harry potter and the prisoner of Azkaban. Um, and then she gives a good summary of how time travel is actually, or how time is working, and goes into four dimensionalism. Um, and then we get into some paradoxes of time travel, and she makes a distinction between contradictory, which is bad and they can't occur, so philosophically it is impossible to this contradiction, and some that are just a tricky puzzle. And she says that most or all time travel paradox paradoxes are actually the second type, they're just kind of a tricky puzzle, but it's still possible. Your Did time's you your 14 seconds over, I'm afraid. I am awful at this. It's I hard. am terrible. It's really hard. <laughs> um, okay, well, she talks about causal loop, the predestination paradox, and the threat of that time travel could cause to free will. And I will leave it there. One thing, uh, could you explain causal loops for people who don't, who yes. aren't familiar with the idea? Okay, so... I'll just I'll use an example to illustrate it. So so say Amelia, you go back in time and you give your younger self plans for a time machine, and then you grow up, you've built the time machine, and then you go back in time and then you give yourself the younger the your younger self the plans for the time machine. Um, so it's this idea of where do the plans come from? Mm. Because we normally think of our call histories as like a line of dominoes where sort of one thing affects the other. But with time travel, they kind of bend back on themselves and you end up with sort of a circle. Um, so causal loops can sort of make it seem like something is coming from nowhere. Um, but she actually, so the, the lecturer actually doesn't think that, or Steph doesn't think that, um, that that's actually as much of a problem as people think. She, she again argues that that's puzzling, it's a tricky puzzle, but it's not contradictory that that's mm. the case. Mm. It was, there's a sort of a, not exactly a parallel to that, but... Um, is or the predestination paradox is more 
what I was thinking of. So could you explain that? Yeah, so the predestination paradox is, there's, there's sort of two examples. I'm going to give the, the archaeologist and the skeleton example. Um, but it's basically, so say you're an archaeologist, I mean, you're an archaeologist now, um, and you are digging away and you find a skeleton. And you're, you're interested in where skeletons come from. So you time travel back to when the, you know, the, the animal or whatever it is died. Um, but the, the conditions are really inhospitable. And so you die there in the spot where you find the skeleton and you become the skeleton. And so then, you know, time passes on and then there you are again and you die and that's how it all happens. So it, it's necessary for you to travel back in time to the skeleton to be there at all for you then to discover. Mm-hmm. Um, which then makes it seem like you didn't have any free will in that decision. Like that's, it had to happen. You had to get in the time machine. Um, but she argues that's not true. She's saying that basically it's true that you it's true that you did go back. We know it's true. You did do that, but it wasn't necessary that you did that. It's just that the fact that you did that set off a whole chain of events in motion. And mm-hmm. because you did go back, that's why you discovered yourself and that's why I went back. But you didn't have to go back. Mm. It reminded me a lot of um, the self-fulfilling prophecy in psychology, mm-hmm. which is where you believe something has happened. So you look for lots of confirmations and you change sort of your cognitive view whether it's on purpose or by accident uh, to match what you think is going to happen and then it happens well see that's so interesting because there's actually that kind of feeds into this idea of like so imagine a time traveler comes back and they say to you you're going to wear a red dress on saturday um and then if it's true that like discussion of like whether or not you had a choice so is it going to be that just loads of external events happened that somehow meant that if you in fact did wear a red dress on saturday or is it going to be like an artifact of your psychology in that maybe this like self-fulfilling prophecy where somebody said you were going to do it and then that meant that you kind of pushed yourself into doing it mm. if you see i mean i mean i think i think that's right in terms in terms of self-fulfilling prophecy yeah yeah it's it, i loved the all of the moral dilemmas I'd never really considered because when you watch I used to watch Doctor Who when I was younger for example (laughs) and uh, you always wonder with the butterfly effect and things like that as well how how much just one changing one single thing even a word if I said one different word in a parallel universe to one I said now how that could potentially spiral out into all of these strange different events yeah well I think what's so what's interesting and like do listen to the podcast because I could be getting this wrong but from what I understood um one thing that is important in time travel is that events only ever happen once so you might see them from a lot of different perspectives but it only ever like it only ever occurred that way so the example that Steph uses is if I traveled to the 1st of January 1920 then I was always there on the 1st of January 1920 Mm. um which would then suggest that going into the past you can't change the future it's almost like the fact that you go into the past is already factored into the future if you know what I mean or it's already factored into the past so that was always going to happen like that did always happen it's just that do you know what I mean it's like almost like they're always running concurrently yeah I mean so you think like that brings up free will again you think that you're making a choice to travel back in time that for the world to be the way it is you have to have already done that Yes, well, see, that is the thing, that is the point where I get very confused, because she would say that that is not true, and that we can have free will with time travel, but I am struggling, I am struggling to tell you why, but maybe if our listeners listen to the podcast, they will be able to answer that for themselves, because she does describe it, 
um but i found that slightly hard to get because it does it does really just seem like your free will is massively inhibited but she said that's like a it's like a modal fallacy in that mistaking true for necessary mm. um yeah and then the, the last thing i wanted to talk about was um i mean it's a it's a great episode with loads of they talk about different theories of time and the the cube which i think it touched on um which we touched on with like things only happening once in time travel Mm-hmm. But one thing I had never considered all that much before was external time versus personal time. Yes, right. I thought that was absolutely fascinating because I had not considered that either. Um, but yeah, so the, your, the external time is kind of time as we know it or time proper, um, which, you know, maybe measured by like ageing or the, the, you know, the time in a clock or something. And then, so that would be, you know, if you travelled back in time 50 years that might take 15 minutes of your actual time mm. um but it's sorry no, do you know what? i've actually gotten that wrong i've gotten that totally wrong to cut that out um <laughs> so the um external time is time as we know or time proper and then your personal time is the time that goes by on your wristwatch or the aging of your cells mm. so i did get that wrong um but then yes yeah, so if you go back say 50 years you've gone back 50 years in external time but in personal time you might have like traveled like 15 minutes can we do my flatmate just walked in? Yes, of course. Sorry, sorry. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> um, if we go, sorry again from no, ab- absolutely fine. It's fine. I totally fucked it up anyway, so it's okay. Brilliant. Um, okay, so David Lewis distinguishes between external time, which is sort of time as we know it, or time proper, and then your personal time, um, which is the time that we go by on your watch or the aging of your cells. So a time traveller could go back 50 years um, in external time, but maybe only 15 minutes in personal time. Mm. And that discrepancy is essentially what time travel is. Yeah, that's, I loved as well, because that really parallels, like, you know, people say time flies as you get older or when you're having fun, when Mm. you're paying attention, time seems the slowest, especially if it's something boring, how subjective our personal time is yeah because i'm not so what i'm not sure about is whether or not personal time is that kind of like because it sounds like it would be subjective time mm-hmm. or whether or not it's it's very much like personal time because she basically says that personal time and external time match up okay. for for us all the time unless unless we're time traveling pretty much or there may be some other instances but generally speaking personal time is like the time it is kind of like a, almost like a standard measurement and it is just like the rate at which you age or something. Mm-hmm. And then the only time where that discrepancy emerges is really when you travel. But then and I think there's almost like another type of time that we'd be talking about in terms of like the experience of time, mm. which I suppose would be like a third category. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll have to, maybe we can have a, another collab where we talk about time travel time. and the third category. That would be fascinating. We should do that. Well, thank you for talking with me. Well, thank you for having me on. It's yeah. been good fun. Well, thank you for talking to me. You're very welcome. And I'm really excited to listen to the rest of the podcast episodes when they come out. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you for having me on. Find Thoughts Podcast on all major podcasting platforms and listen to them interviewing us on their channels. This interview was conducted by Amelia Hilton and Katie Moody over Zoom. The Brainscape Podcast was created by Amelia Hilton with original music. Jack Harding.